Zion Williamson, Lindsey Graham, John Paul Jones. So Zion Williamson is an 18-year-old basketball phenom. Uh, the NBA lottery happened this week to determine which team would get to have the number one overall pick in this upcoming draft. And so 1,000% chance that Zion Williamson is going to be picked number one. Lindsey Graham, he's a politician, a senator from the state of South Carolina. And John Paul Jones, who I just heard of this week, apparently is one of the more controversial contestants on the new season of The Bachelorette. Apparently there was a very dramatic moment in the final rose ceremony uh, of this first new episode of the new season. So what, what do all three of these people have in common with each other? Tuesday morning when I opened up my computer and, and started to work for the day, I, I got on Twitter, and Twitter has this function where you can see what's trending. And so what Twitter does is it combs through you know, millions of tweets of what people are talking about, and it looks for common names or common words or common catchphrases, and it compiles them into a, a, a list of, of ranking of who or what are people talking about the most. And so when I got on Twitter, I saw that you know, at 8 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, we were talking about these three people. And I just thought that was a, a really interesting snapshot of our culture that at 8 a.m. on a Tuesday, the most boring time of the week, we are obsessed with celebrities. We are obsessed with fame. If you have power or influence or money or entertainment value, if you can do any of those things at an elite level, then you are going to get recognition. People are going to talk about you. You will be in the news. And even as Christians, we are very susceptible to this. I mean, I mean, the fact that celebrity pastors and megachurches are a thing shows that we love our big personalities. And this celebrity culture, that's actually a similarity that our culture has with the culture of the story that we are going to be looking at today. As we move into Acts chapter 8, we are going to be in the area of Samaria and Judea. And chapter 8 represents a geographical shift in the book of Acts. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So the first seven chapters of Acts, they occur all in Jerusalem. And then with the, the death and the stoning of Stephen and Paul persecuting the church, the great persecution arises and the Christians are, are scattered out of Jerusalem and they go, go into Judea and Samaria. So the next few chapters, chapters 8 through 12, are going to take place there. And what we're going to see is that these Samaritans, they also loved their celebrities. So Philip, who was one of the spirit-filled men chosen as a deacon back in uh, chapter 6, he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And so if you were with us last year as we studied the book of John, Samaria might ring a bell for you. You, are, you might remember uh, this part of their culture. Because in John chapter 2, Jesus was doing some incredible things. He was doing some very public things that was drawing a lot of attention to himself. At the wedding at Cana, he had turned the water into wine, and the people went absolutely nuts. I mean, who doesn't like more wine at the wedding? 
And then, you know, right after he got really glad at the wedding, he got mad at the temple. And when he saw that the money changers were oppressing and taking advantage of the people trying to worship, he started flipping tables and and whipping people and beating them out of the temple. Jesus was very, very well known because of the works and the signs that he was doing. And then you get to John chapter 4, and a Samaritan official comes to Jesus, and his son is sick. And he says, Jesus, can, can you heal my boy? Can you heal my son? And, and Jesus is honestly kind of harsh with him. He's kind of rude. Jesus said to this man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So basically, I know what you want from me. You don't want me. You just want what I can give you. You just want my healing power. You don't actually want me. And so the people of Samaria, they loved a good show. They loved a good celebrity, someone who could entertain them. And so as as Philip, as he moves into this region of Samaria, he is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And in order to validate his preaching, he is performing signs. In verse 7, we saw that, uh, you know, he was casting out unclean spirits, that people who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and that there was much joy in the city. And so Philip was their, their biggest, their newest celebrity. Everybody loved him. He was making a stir. And then as we keep reading, we learn about one of their oldest celebrities, Simon. And Simon was famous because he was a magician. And Simon would have fit in very, very well in 2019. Simon loved Simon. Okay, he, uh, he himself thought he was great. From, from the very least to the very greatest, all the people in the city loved him. They even said, this man has the power of God. So this man, he reminds me of T.O. If anybody remembers Terrell Owens, he was a football player. And so whenever he would score a touchdown, he would do a celebration and run back to the sideline and look into the camera and he would say, I love me some me. Or the reason that, you know, one of the reasons I love Kanye, musical guy, is because nobody loves Kanye more than Kanye loves Kanye. And I'm here for it. Like, it's just, it's entertaining to me. Guilty pleasure. I love it. And so Simon is a lot like T.O. He is a lot like Kanye. And so you kind of have these dueling celebrities uh, in town. You have people vying for attention, vying for crowds, vying to see who can be the biggest guy. So eventually, through his, his faithful preaching of the word, Samaritans come to faith. Multitudes of the men and women. And then in verse 13, we're going to see that even Simon himself becomes a believer. Simon believes, and then he is baptized. And so what Simon is doing, he is saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Lord. And in baptism, he is going public. He is putting on the Team Jesus jersey, and he is telling everyone in the world, I believe in Jesus. I follow him. He is Lord. I am a disciple of his. I want everybody to know it. And Simon's conversion really is at the heart of this passage. And it introduces a tension that I think all of us have to wrestle with. And the tension and the question that we have to wrestle with here and that we have to ask ourselves is, was Simon a genuine believer? Was he a true follower of Christ? Was his faith legitimate? 
So over the last few weeks, I've been doing a lot of membership interviews, and so just something that we really believe in and emphasize a lot here is church membership. And so as people have been, you know, applying to become members of the church, and I've just asked them their story of how they came to know the Lord, you know, probably 70 to 80 percent of the people have a pretty similar story, and, and it's my story as well. They grew up in the church, or they grew up in a believing home, and either because they saw an older sibling, you know, confess faith and be baptized, or because they knew that it would make their family really happy, or because they just wanted to, to fit in, you know, they, they kind of went through that whole process. They said the right words, they, they got baptized, they went through the whole thing. And then later, you know, maybe it was high school or college or, or whenever it was, they had such a radical, real, transforming encounter with Jesus that just changed everything. And, and they thought, okay, I know Jesus so much more than I did back then. Was I even a believer back then? You know, maybe I wasn't. Maybe it just started now. Or, or maybe I was a genuine believer, but, you know, the relationship has just, you know, blossomed and, and flowered and, and, and grown uh, up to this point. You know, I, I think that's a, a tension that, that all of us can identify with. And when I first read Simon's story, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, yeah, he's going to try and get the Holy Spirit for hire. He's going to try and just pay money so that he can control the power of God, which is clearly horrible. But I think, okay, well, how often do I run back to who I used to be? How often do I, you know, run back to my old self and my old habits and forget who I am in Christ and try and go back to who I once was? You know, maybe this was just a, an immature moment for a young believer. But the more that I look at Simon, kind of the, the evidence is kind of overwhelming, I think, that Simon was not a genuine believer. He, he got off to a really troubling start. Look at verse 13 with me. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So if there is one thing that a young believer should be amazed by, it is Jesus. It is Jesus himself and the glory of Jesus. But what was Simon amazed by? Right at the very beginning, he was attracted to the signs. He was attracted to the wonder. That is what uh, enthralled and raptured his heart. Then down in verse 18, where he tries to offer the apostles money so that he can have the Spirit of God at his own disposal and command. You know, last week Mark talked about how a lot of us can kind of slip into having a latent prosperity theology. You know, the idea that if I give God my money, that he will bless me, that he will make me powerful or rich, or that my marriage will be great, or my kids will be these perfect little Christians. You know, if I bless God, then my life will go well. You know, that's just a, that's an idea from hell, and it needs to go straight back there. Verse 21, I think, is the nail in Simon's coffin. As Peter was rebuking him, Peter said, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. So what I think we see is that Simon was interested in Jesus. He liked Jesus. He respected Jesus. But he only liked Jesus insofar as being associated with Jesus could promote his own social standing and status. So Simon's believing was a false faith. 
This is the same kind of faith struggle that the Samaritans had all throughout the book of John. And as we studied John, we saw that there were two kinds of faith. There was true faith and there was false faith. And false faith, it looks to the signs. It looks to Jesus turning the water into wine. It looks to Jesus feeding the 5,000. It looks to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It looks to those things and it doesn't go any further. It looks to those signs and it stops right there. It says, I am entertained by this. I am impressed by this. So Jesus, do it again. But the next time, do it bigger and do it better. So Jesus, next time you're at a wedding and they run out, don't just turn it into wine. Turn it into bourbon. Or, you know, next time you feed 5,000, make some up for 10,000. Give us leftovers. Or don't just raise one person from the dead. Raise my entire family. False faith is consumed with the signs and what they can get from Jesus. True faith, on the other hand, it sees the signs for what they really are. Okay, what, what do signs do? They, they point to something, right? Whenever you're driving on the road, if you see a sign that says, your destination, five miles, you know, turn right here, your destination is, is right around the corner. Signs in and of themselves are not meant to be gazed at and feasted upon. They are pointing you to something else. And so true faith follows the signs of Jesus. It looks at them and then looks what they are pointing to. And so when Jesus turns, you know, the, the, and when he feeds the 5,000, that is Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. So look to the signs, but then look at what they are pointing to me. See and savor Jesus. That is what true faith does which I think begs the question for us. Why do you follow Jesus? Do you have a false faith or a true faith? So I I grew up in the buckle of the Bible Belt, Birmingham, Alabama, and so cultural Christianity is just the the waters that I I grew up swimming in. And so, you know, if you weren't at church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, then, then you weren't really a good Christian. And the signs, a lot of people there are consumed with the signs. And that's not as prevalent here, but it is still, it's still here of why do you follow Jesus? Is it because you want to fit in? Is it because you want to be respected in the community? Is it because you like the benefits of being close to Jesus? You like the community or you like always having people who are willing to help you out? Or, you know, Jesus is just some interesting figure that you can respect and learn from? Why do you follow Jesus? Is it because of what you can get from him or because of simply who he is and the beauty and the glory of the gospel? So one one pastor that I've learned a lot from uh, said that a a mistake that young preachers make in in trying to lead a congregation is that they are too critical in their tone, and and that'll, you know, work for a little while, but people get burned out on that pretty quickly, and and encouragement is a much, much better way to go. So just as an encouragement, if you are thinking, you know, I I like Jesus, I respect Jesus, but I don't know if I love him simply for who he is. 
just as an encouragement, Jesus is so much better than the signs. The signs are just the appetizer. Move on to the feast. Your heart is not designed, it is not meant to feed on the lesser things, the crumbs that fall off the table. Just feast on Jesus himself. Look to him, look past all of the other stuff, and focus your your eyes and your heart solely on Jesus. Jesus is better. So we are pretty confident that Simon is not a true believer. And now that means that the church has a really big problem on her hands. Remember, Simon is very, very popular. Everybody knows who Simon is. From the, from the least to the greatest in Samaria, everybody knows him. And Simon was baptized. He'd put on the Team Jesus jersey. He had, he had gone public. He said, I am following Jesus. And then in being baptized, the church affirmed that profession. They said, yes, if the world wants to see a true Christ follower, look at Simon. But now with Simon just doing this prosperity theology thing and not having a right heart before the Lord, you know, what is the church going to do? When last week or a few weeks ago we tried to come up with a list of reasons that would inhibit the work of the gospel from going out, you know, this is one of those reasons when a person claiming to follow Christ is no longer living in a way consistent with the gospel. That is a problem. So what should the church do in response? Starting in verse 20, we're going to see that Peter has some incredibly strong words against Simon. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. So what we have is Simon, who is no longer walking in step with the gospel, and Peter is coming to Simon, and he is confronting him in his sin. He is trying to bring him back to repentance and restoration. And so what I think we are seeing here is the first step in the process of church discipline. This happens when a church member's lips or life is no longer confessing that Christ is Lord. So so this process has its roots back in Matthew 16. I feel like I've been referencing this passage a lot the last few weeks uh, of preaching. I think that's just because Matthew 16 is the first time that the word church appears in the New Testament. And so kind of all of our ecclesiology, all of our understanding of the church, all of our practices of the church flow from this passage. And in that that story, Jesus comes to Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus goes, yes, that's right. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. And on this rock, on this confession that I am the Christ, and on this confessor, someone making that true confession, I will build my church. And so on the confession and on the confessor that Christ is Lord, those are the building blocks that Christ will use to build up the new covenant temple of God, the church. However, if someone swerves from that confession, 
if someone no longer with their lips says that Christ is Lord or with their life displays that Christ is Lord. Jesus has given the church the authority to remove that building block from the temple or to remove that person from the congregation. And again, over the last few weeks as I've been doing membership interviews, as people have read through our statement of faith and our church covenant, uh, Church discipline is probably one of the biggest questions that people have. They've either never heard of it, or they would think, there is absolutely no way we would ever do that, right? You know, that, that sounds mean or judgmental or hard-hearted to, to remove someone from the church. And, and I think it's a real shame um, that, that church discipline has been viewed that way. Um, and, and I understand why. I, I, I understand that uh, a lot of people have been abused by that practice. But, but just so we're all on the same page, and so I think we can get a biblical understanding of this process, I'm just going to read uh, our statement of faith and what we believe about this. So it's, it's a pretty long paragraph, so stick with me. So from our statement of faith, we believe that church discipline is the process of confronting sin to achieve repentance and restoration. It is also intended to prevent unrestrained sin from spreading to others and to protect the honor of Jesus Christ. The informal process of church discipline happens any time a believer confronts another believer about his or her sin and encourages repentance. The formal process of church discipline typically begins when the individual in sin is unwilling to repent over an extended period of time. Therefore, most formal church discipline is not about the sin as it is about the hard-heartedness, unwillingness, to repent for sin. The process of church discipline concludes when the believer either repents or is formally removed by the elders from participating in the church. Additionally, those who intentionally stir up divisions in the church should be disciplined with greater swiftness. So just some of the biblical texts that we draw this practice and understanding from is Matthew 18. So in that, in that passage, Jesus says that if there is an unrepentant brother or sister, that one person should go and lovingly confront them and try and bring them to repentance. And if they still refuse, then two or three should go and try and bring them to repentance. And if they still refuse, bring them before the church. And if they still refuse, then treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. You know, treat them like an outsider. And then second place is 1 Corinthians 5. So there's just a really messed up and and heartbreaking situation going on in the church in Corinth. There's a a man sleeping with his own mother-in-law, and Paul instructs the church to remove that man from among them. He basically says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so that's kind of the, how the picture fills itself out as we go through the rest of the New Testament. That's where we get the, the full picture of how this is to be done. But I think we are seeing the first step of that process and the first instance of that process here in Acts chapter 8. Um, technically, I do think uh, the first instance uh, may have been Ananias and Sapphira, but I think God took pretty swift action and beat the church uh, to it on that one. Uh, but, but the biggest mistake that I think that any individual or any church can make when pursuing church discipline is to do it in a, a mean or vindictive or hard-hearted or witch-hunt kind of way. The goal of church discipline is always repentance. It is always restoration. Remember the very first line from our statement of faith about this. Church discipline is the process of confronting sin to achieve repentance and restoration. 
This is for the good of the individual. It is to try and bring the sheep back into the fold. So if you remember nothing else, let everything else fall to the wayside. If you remember nothing else, this is a process of love. It is meant to bring that sheep back to the fold. And so I think what we see throughout this passage is that church discipline is a process that is meant for three people or for three groups of people. It's for the individual, it's for the congregation, and it is for the non-Christian. So first, it is for the individual. It is for the sheep who is wandering astray. So say you are driving on a very hazardous mountain road, and there is a sign that says, warning, turn back now. Right around the corner, the road stops completely. If you keep driving, you are going to drive yourself off the cliff. That's what church discipline is. It is covenanting together to say, would you love me enough to be a warning sign for me? If you see me starting to stray away from the gospel, would you love me enough to say, brother, sister, you are hurting yourself. You are going down a dangerous path. Do it, do it boldly. I mean, Peter was very, very strong right here. When was the last time somebody looked at you and said, you are in the gall of bitterness and agony? So it was very, very tough of Peter, but it was also very, very tender. It was meant to bring him back. And nobody would look at that warning side on the mountain road and get really mad at the sign. Nobody would get indignant at the sign and say, how dare you try and protect me? I, I can do what I want. I can drive on the road that's not there. The sign is meant to be an assistance and an encouragement and a safety net. So, so church membership and church discipline, that is locking arms with one another and loving one another enough to know that I can't do this Christian life on my own. I can't finish the race on my own. I need my brothers and sisters to help me. I think it's really interesting that Peter is the one who is leading the charge in addressing Simon's sin. Back in Luke 22, the night before he was betrayed, Jesus said to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Peter, Peter, I know uh, that, Christ, or that Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've returned, strengthen the brothers. So Jesus knew that Peter was going to betray him. He said, when you return, when you come back, strengthen the brother, strengthen the church. I think just one implication of that is that perseverance in the faith, it's a group project. It's a community project. It takes a church to get us across the finish line. And this is what church membership and church discipline is. It is the means that God has given us to hold each other accountable. It's to lock arms with one another to help us ensure that we all finish the race together. So it's for the individual. It's also for the congregation, particularly for the younger or the weaker sheep. Uh, I think there's a reason that Paul calls some Christians infants. It's because they are weak, they are defenseless, and they don't know any better. So all of these new believers in Samaria, they are very, very fresh. They are very fragile and very vulnerable. They, they have not grown in the, up in the church. They have not received sound teaching. They, they are very, very impressionable. And 
What would happen if Simon's prosperity theology was just allowed to run rampant, unchecked throughout the church? People would think, oh, well, I have to be rich to serve God well. Or God will only love me if I give him money. Or the Spirit only blesses the work of those people who have money. It would create just this hierarchy, this economic hierarchy within the church. And so for the sake of the younger and the weaker sheep, those who do not know any better, a church has to protect the gospel. Sometimes you have to protect the sheep from fighting and devouring the other sheep. And then number three, church discipline is for the non-Christian. It's for the outsider who is looking in. So this, this might sound a little odd, but church discipline is a powerful tool in evangelism. We ran into this in Acts chapter 5 as after Ananias and Sapphira, the church was walking in a holy fear of the Lord. And what we saw is that none of the rest, meaning none of the rest of the crowds in Jerusalem, dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. So as the church was pursuing holiness and as they were pursuing purity, the outsiders were able to look in. and They're able to say, they are not like us. They are different. They take their God and holiness and purity and the gospel seriously. And so to some people that... That repelled them away. They didn't want any part of it. But, but to others, that, that was the aroma of Christ to them. So how do you grow your church? How do you get more than ever believers were added, multitudes of men and women? You love each other enough to protect the gospel and to practice church, church discipline. Notice how uh, this passage ends in verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So as they were going back home, they were going through the area of Samaria. They were passing all these villages, people where everybody would have known Simon. He was that popular and that influential. And so the the reputation of the gospel was on the line. And so for the sake of the purity of the gospel, for the sake of the attractiveness of the gospel, the church had to step to this issue. So we said a few weeks ago that the relationship between the gospel and the church is like a diamond ring. The diamond is the gospel. It's the beautiful part. It's the attractive part. It is the important part. That is what we want people to see. The church is the actual ring, the settings, and the prongs. It is meant to portray the gospel, it is meant to proclaim the gospel, and it is meant to protect the gospel. And so for the sake of the gospel going out, for the sake of people having a pure and clear and accurate picture of who Jesus is and what he has done and how the church should gather, let's be a church that loves one another enough to hold one another accountable who loves one another enough to open up to one another, to share our struggles, to lovingly confront one another for the sake of the gospel and the sake of those who do not know him. So towards that end, let me pray for us. Lord, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for coming to us becoming like us and putting on flesh and dying in our place for taking 
the wrath and the penalty that we deserved on your own shoulders. We thank you for what that represents and the, the hope and the eternal life that we have in you. And God, you have given your church a weighty task to proclaim and portray and protect this gospel. So Lord, would you continue to grow us? Would you continue to purify us? Would you continue to uh, form us as a people into your image that reflects your character? Lord, for the sake of the world, for the sake of the nations, would you conform us more into your image? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.